I got a uh, letter, <clears throat> email sent to me. You know, anytime someone makes a comment and writes to you, offering, you know, correction or their opinion or whatever, you want to take it and say, okay, is this person, you know, how do I take this? Do I, is this something that I need to apply? I want to read it to you. And it, it was, it was presented in humility. It's not, uh, not everything I get is, is, a lot of it can be harsh as far as, you know, you're wrong, you're crazy, your religion's wrong, you got it all, you know, it's, that's just your opinion. And, but this one was worth noting because of the way he approached it. He said, I saw some of your program today about when we receive immortality. I'm not sure I agree with it all. In the portion of the program I watched, did not hear you address Paul's statement to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I'm not a theologian. I do think, however, there is a lot about the afterlife that is still a mystery, a term that even Paul used when addressing the subject. I have no problem with believing that God who created us from dust can also allow us to live without a body as we know it until we receive a new body like that of the Lord Jesus. Everything you say on your program may be totally accurate, but I have to be honest, when someone picks apart every doctrine and criticizes the way they have been presented for hundreds of years, I see red flags. Remember the folks on Mars Hill gathered in Rome to see what new things they could discover. The old, old gospel is still the power of God into salvation. Don't be different for the sake of being different. Uh, not trying to start any arguments, just saying the way I feel. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, 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 I wrote the man back and I, I thought, I said, you know, it's sort of, it's funny that one-on-one -on -one I am not a controversial person. Uh, I don't like arguing religion, don't, like, don't even like talking religion one-on-one. -on -one. But um, that when I do the program, I deliberately, deliberately use controversy to try to blow people out of their comfort zone. It's an approach that is deliberate. It's, it's, I, I'm aware of it when I do it. Um, you know, it's not just something that sneaks up on me. It's something I work, work at presenting at, in a certain fashion. And for me, I've found that passive nice guy approach doesn't, my opinion, doesn't really work. Um, I remember when my mother was sick, I was watching TV, religion on TV, and there was a guy talking about Christmas. And man, he had his information correct. He had everything about Christmas, the origins of it, the pagan symbols of it. He was right on the money. And uh, his approach was, though, I report, you decide. And, but he was so nice in presenting his, what, what, what was the truth? But he was so nice not to hurt, not to offend anyone. And uh, when he got through, I said, okay, Christmas. Should I keep it? Should I not keep it? Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it good? Is it bad? Is God pleased? Is he not pleased? None of those answers, none of those questions were ever answered because of his approach. I report, you decide. I just give you the truth, you decide. Now, what I believe is when you're working with the carnal mind, and that's what you're working with when you do outreach, the carnal mind will always choose according to the inclinations of the carnal mind. The carnal mind will always choose the easy way out. The carnal mind will always say, oh yeah, I see what you're saying, but I don't care. You know, it, it will always do the easy way. So for me, putting stuff in people's face, 
making fun of them, whatever, whatever it takes to get their attention, to knock them out of their comfort zone is, is deliberate. I do struggle with it from time to time because, like I said, one-on-one, -on -one, I'm not like that. I'm, I am a nice guy one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> um, but that, that used to bother me that I would present something like a, a stage, you know, when you're acting, you're different. But then I read the story about Johnny Carson, that Johnny Carson was a high-end introvert. His idea of a party was three people, three of his closest friends at, at, at home. He was a high-end introvert. Uh, his, one of his ex-wives said he's extremely shy. So here was a person that came across like an extrovert. I mean, he just, he loved people. He, was, he could interview anybody. He, he, he never was at a, a shortage for words, uh, quick-witted. And yet he's an introvert. In reality, so you know, the person you present on, you know, maybe in the state, the show time, and the real person is two different things. And I think this happens a lot. You think you know the person you're seeing on TV or whatever, but it's it's not the real person, not really. You know, it's just you think it, you got that person figured out, but not really. So I, I I looked at this, I thought, and I tried to answer, you know, his questions about. And I said I had a program on that subject of. Uh, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But I had to evaluate this. And I thought, okay, don't be different for the sake of being different. I thought about that, and I thought, well, you know, my religion, ever since God called me, has always been the same. Um, I, God did not give me a conviction of Sunday worship. He, he didn't. I mean, I was aware of Sunday worship, and... Uh, and I think because my parents kept the Sabbath, they said, and they, 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 they did not force church on us, thank goodness. But they set the example of Sabbath, shut down the business, we don't work. We rest. They set that example. And so, but what I'm saying is God did not give me a conviction of a 45-minute worship service, go shake the preacher's hand and walk out the door and go back to your routine. He didn't give me a conviction of that. God did not give me a conviction of well, you really, if you just, you know, you need to put Christ in Christmas. And, and uh, he didn't give me that conviction. He gave me a conviction of the holy days. Um, he did not give me a conviction of heavenly retirement. Um, he gave me a conviction that Christ is going to return and establish his government on this earth, the soon coming kingdom of God on this earth. That's the conviction. He did not give me a superficial conviction of sin. Well, you know, just, just raise your hand, accept Jesus, and that's good. No, he gave me a deep conviction of areas in my life that was totally screwed up and that, that through, that if I received, the hope for me was, if I received the power of the Holy Spirit, I could, I could work toward changing that person, the things that were wrong about me. That's the conviction he gave me. Um, so I was, I realized I'm not trying to be different, it's just my conviction. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, you know, necessarily. Now, maybe, okay, let me look at the letter again. Now, I don't criticize everything about mainstream Christianity. I have some programs that I don't even, I talk about all kinds of things. Sometimes I do criticize it, but I talk about, you know, hate my life was one. I talked about 
different things besides just knocking people's religion. I don't just blast away at their religion. <clears throat> but I begin to think about it. I, it's not me trying to be different. Maybe it's the fact that today's Christianity is so different. That it's become unrecognizable when measured again, uh, to the Bible. Am I really being that different, or is today's religion, Christianity, different? In Jude 1 and verse 3, there's this statement, and this is not on the PowerPoint, but Jude 1 and verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly Contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. So when I think about, okay, we need, and you hear people say this, we need to return to the old-time-fashioned gospel. You know, we need to, that old gospel, that old-fashioned gospel. We need to return back to that. Well, basically what they're talking about is something that maybe 50 or 100 years ago, we need to return back to that. But this is not what this is talking about. This was several thousand years ago. What, what this verse is talking about. Uh, so, so we are to return to something that existed I mean, maybe 1,800 years ago, a return to the New Testament church that Jesus built and existed before and after his ascension. That's what we need to return. That's, that's what this verse is. This verse is not talking about some type of old-time gospel thing that we need to return to that existed 20 or 30 years ago. No, this is talking about something that existed when, when Jesus walked the earth and then later after he ascended back to heaven, the New Testament church, they were in danger of falling away, some of them, to contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So I want to go through some areas here of that church that existed back then. And uh, we'll, we'll go through some of this on the PowerPoint. I think I, I got the first one up here right now. We'll, we'll address the day of worship. All right, what were they doing back then, day of worship? Well, this is verse, Luke 4 and verse 16. It says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, speaking of Jesus. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Okay, here Jesus is keeping, observing the Sabbath day. Now, you know this, but I'm just, I'm just going through this. It, it's good to be encouraged about your faith and not just think, am I being a weirdo, an oddball? Am I being different for the sake of being different? No. This is, this is what Jesus did. If Jesus came back today, 90% of Christians would miss him. They'd be going to church on the wrong day. Well, I, oh, I miss Jesus. Oh, well. <laughs> Where's he at? I, I took out a church, shook, shook the preacher's hand, lit up a cigarette, and I missed Jesus. Well, no, it's, well you, you got you to gotta keep the day that he kept to, to, to find him. Um, at least it helps, at least I think. <clears throat> Next one. Acts 17, verse 2. And Paul, as his manner was. Now, here's the apostle of grace. That law-hating Paul. Uh, as his manner was, went into them three Sabbath days and reasoned with them out of the scripture. So here Paul is preaching, teaching on God's Sabbath. 
Acts 18 and verse 3. And because he was of the same craft and abode with them and wrought for by their occupation, they were tent makers. Paul was a tent maker, and this is, this is, that's encouraging. You know, here's hard manual labor work, making tents. Too bad he wasn't a rock mason. <laughs> All right, and, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded, notice this, the Jews and the Greeks. Not just the Jews, the Greeks also. And then you have the council of, uh, at Jerusalem that I've always thought was interesting because, uh, you know, there was this teaching, unless you be circumcised, you cannot be saved. Uh, and they had to correct that issue and say, okay, no, 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 you're, 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 that's not right. But what's interesting about the Jerusalem Council, this was a huge council, the first church council that they had in the New Testament church. And what you'll notice is there's no mention of a change in the day of worship at that Jerusalem Council. Now, I've actually had people say this one. People can spin anything. They'll say, well, there's no mention of, of uh, Sabbath keeping at the Jerusalem Council. Well, you know why? Because they've been keeping it for 4,000 years. Uh, no need to mention that one, you know. Moses is preached every Sabbath day. I mean, no. Um, but it's, what you've got to realize is that Jerusalem council, if there had been a change in the day of worship, all you, they would have talked about is Jesus has presented us a new day of worship. Now we're going to worship on the first work day of the week. That's all they would have talked about. You can't change laws. God's laws, fourth commandments, without some kind of recognition in the Bible, giving it authority where it's been changed. There is no authority for it. That's all that council would have been about if there had been a change in the day of worship. That's all they would have talked about. It would have been covered very deeply. All right. Did I mention the fourth commandment, that the Sabbath is the fourth commandment? Okay. All right. And God says, I change not. All right. All right. So a return to the New Testament church that Jesus built is, is what we're focusing on. Now, the next one is, what kind of holidays did they keep? What kind of holidays did they keep? Well, here we have Jesus went to, uh, now his parents, excuse me, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover, of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. Now we have Jesus' parents and what his parents taught him. And, of course, you know, it's being God in the flesh, you know what I mean? He knew all this, but still, 12 years old, uh, feast of Passover. Acts 12 and verse 4. Now this one is, uh, I think that's... Uh, the uh, new, uh, King, uh, new King James translation. But it says, In capturing him, he put him in prison and delivered him to set, uh, four sets of soldiers to keep him, intending, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. I think the King James will say the mistranslation of Easter. But uh, it's Passover. It's Passover. Acts 18 and verse 21. All right, what kind of holidays did they keep? 
but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that comes in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. So here we have um, keeping the feast. I think that's a reference to the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so here we have, you know, the Passover, uh, unleavened bread, uh, keeping, keeping the, the holiday or holy days of God. And of course, you have this verse that actually they say was written probably during the season, during the season of uh, Passover and unleavened bread. Paul says, your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Notice the symbolism of the unleavened bread, feast of unleavened bread. Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As ye are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Notice that. Symbolism. Passover. Unleavened bread. Therefore let us keep the feast. What feast? Well, the feast of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread. Not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Powerful scripture about the holy days and they were keeping. Acts 27 and verse 9. Now when much time was spent... And when selling was now dangerous because the fast, notice that word, fast was now already past, Paul admonished them and said to them, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the landing and ship, but also of, the, of our lives. And so, but anyway, that word, uh, fast, now when the fast was uh, uh, past, uh, was now already past, that's a direct reference to the Day of Atonement. You can look it up for yourself. The meaning of that word is atonement. So here we have these, these holy days that the New Testament church is keeping. Uh, John, 14 and verse, John 7 and verse 14. Now about the midst of the feast, Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus went up to the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters having never learned? They didn't realize who he was. That he was God in the, the Son of God, God in the flesh. John 7 and verse 37, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So here's the reference to the, the great day or the eighth day of the feast. Jesus is teaching, preaching, keeping the New Testament church that Jesus built. Now, of course, what you notice is that there's no mention of um, no mention of Christmas, Easter, Halloween, Halloween in church. Oh yeah, now, I've said jokingly, but I'm halfway serious uh, that if 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 the trend keeps going of adopting. Halloween in church, and it is a trend that, that's getting more, I don't know how, recognition, but 30 years from now, you're going to hear some, a religious person say, let's put Jesus back into Halloween. It's <laughs> exactly what happened with Christmas. I mean, you know, let's, it, you take this pagan celebration, Saturnalia, we, you, you Christianize it, you say Jesus was born on that day, and then you have people later saying, let's put Christ back into Christmas. Well, okay, you're going to hear, if, if Christ doesn't return before then, let's put Jesus back into Halloween. They'll say, let's put the Hallelujah back into All Hallelujah. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> so maybe the issue is today's Christianity has become so different that it's become unrecognizable when you measure it or measure it to the Bible. All right, the state of the dead. Let's take a look at that. What did the New Testament church believe about the state of the dead? Marvel not as this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good into the resurrection of life and they that have done evil into the resurrection of damnation. Now, okay, what was Jesus' stance on the state of the dead? Well, let's notice. What, was, what did he believe? Well, he believed that there's coming a day when all, okay, all, which are in the grave, what are they doing there? Well, they're asleep in the grave. Okay. We'll hear his voice. That was, that's so simplistic. I mean, that's, that's pretty basic. I know people don't like basic Christianity, but it is basic. Now, I want to explain that, you know, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I want to digress a little bit and then just explain something that my view toward the, you know, the resurrection and, and the little bit, little bit different. You know, as, as you, as you, hopefully as you grow spiritually, you, you, you have to make some changes in the way you think. You know, and so my, uh, it, just hear me out here. Uh, my view is that Jesus spoke of two resurrections. Two. One was a res resurrection to life. The other, resurrection to damnation. All right. Um, I personally believe that that between those two, there's a resurrection in between. How do we know that? Well, the, the last great day, the study of the last great day. But perhaps, in my opinion, the resurrection to life will perhaps occur in stages. Um, we know the resurrection to life. The first fruits, they're they're they're. Okay, they're the first fruits when Christ returned. That, that's, that's one stage. But, and then there's an, another group, all those who never had a chance for salvation. Will be, at least, will all be a part of the resurrection of life. But different, at different, different stages. You know, first you have the first fruits. Then you have uh, maybe what I've been referring to as the resurrection in between. And I have a sermon, I have a message on that. The resurrection in between. And then after all is said and done, you have a resurrection to damnation. Those who have done evil and rejected their chance for salvation. So just a little bit different viewpoint than I, I used to have. I sort of used to try to justify that this, this resurrection to damnation was referring to a, a, a direct reference to the second resurrection. No, I don't think that anymore. I think Jesus talked about two resurrections. One's good, one bad. Uh, <laughs> but in between, or in the stages, you know, you have... Um, well, let, let, let me talk about a little bit all those who never had a chance for salvation in this life. Let's talk about that. Because that's an important issue. Who are those people? There are probably many, are they not? that have never had a chance for salvation in this life. Are they hopelessly lost? No, I don't think so. 
want to read you a story uh, by Ken Swaggart from the uh, Church of God, a minister. I love this story. I asked him, could I, would he send it to me? Could I use it? I haven't used it in a program yet, but I want to. But Something that happened to him. I've been to this Chattanooga Cemetery before. After, hearing his, after reading this letter, I, I went there to, wow, it was a lot of white stones, you know, head, headstones, just as far as the eye can see. I had an experience today that I'd like to share with you. I hope you don't mind. My wife and I drove to the Chattanooga National Cemetery. I'm told it is the second in size only to Arlington to visit the grave of her father who died back in 1991. We generally get over there two or three times a year, and since we were so close, it seemed the right thing to do. We drove through the park and parked near the cul-de-sac down at the end, near the lake. We got out of our car and walked through the rows of white marble headstones to the place where four rows from the back edge of the cemetery. Her father was buried there over 15 years ago. One thing stands out as, you, as your eyes scan the rows of white marble. Most headstones have a cross upon them to signify that the person buried there was a, of Christian affiliation. Occasionally, your eyes will fall upon a headstone with a modified cross to indicate a particular brand of Christian denomination. From time to time, you see a Star of David indicating a person of Jewish heritage or faith is planted beneath the soil there. One such star can be seen from my father's-in-law's grave just to the right and three rows behind. But there among the crosses in the occasional Star of David stands a lonely slab of white marble with only a name, Floyd Jesse McKinn, capital PFC, U.S. Army. The monument gives his date of birth and death, but no indication of a religious affiliation or belief system. You see, my father-in-law was not religious, and he would not have wanted to be hypocritical and pretend that he had lived his life as a Christian. So his wife asked not to place a cross upon his marker. Now don't get me wrong, Floyd McCain, McKinn was a decent, hard-working man. He was not particularly irreligious or anti-Christian in attitude. He definitely had a moral compass but he never professed religion as far as I know. In all the years I knew him, he only entered church for weddings of his daughters and grandchildren. <laughs> I can relate to this guy, by the way. <laughs> uh, his great joy in life was tilling the ground and coaxing fruits and vegetables from it, especially tomatoes. He delighted in picking and sharing his red ripe tomatoes with family, friends, and neighbors. Before his funeral, I heard someone say something about how they thought Floyd may have had a religious experience sometime in the past when working in the field or on the farm. I don't put much stock in such surmising. I find people sometimes imagine things or spin events that make them feel better about a deceased loved one. But most family and friends seem to accept that Floyd was not a professing Christian. Even though they realized their religious training indicated that denying uh, that dying unaffiliated did not 
bode very well for Floyd on the other side of death. The retired elderly minister that preached his funeral, a neighbor for many years and the really only preacher that they knew, asked my mother-in-law if Floyd was saved. She would not claim that he was. Once the preacher determined that Floyd was lost, he never looked back. Without telling the wife or the family, he decided to, vote, to devote the funeral message to a come to Jesus meeting. He never mentioned my father-in-law's name during the sermon, which actually ended with an altar call. You see, he was so sure that Floyd was popping and crackling in fires of hell, he didn't even waste time or any words on him. Then following the funeral, the minister did not even attend the graveside ceremony. There, after a very brief flag ceremony and a 21-gun salute, this man, twice wounded in World War II, recipient of the Purple Heart and two Bronze Stars, was laid to rest with no recognition of his service to his country or words of comfort for the family. All this came rushing back to me as I stood with my wife at the grave of her father. My anger and disappointment smoldered to this very day, but I looked around at all the religious markings on the monuments surrounding Floyd's McCain grave. Then I exp uh, expanded my thoughts and thought of the tens of thousands of white stones that covered what appeared to be perhaps hundreds of acres. There on the markers from the Civil War and from the wars of Afghanistan and Iraq, soldiers had been laid to rest there for a long time. As I looked around, I thought of the day when a voice will ring out and each and every one of those graves will open and the inhabitants will stand on their feet again and answer the call of their creator. My anger and resentment faded and were replaced with a very different emotion. I looked over the graves of the fallen soldiers and wanted to shout out loud to all of them, get up. I long for the day of, of the resurrection when they will all live again. On that day, it will not matter that Floyd McKinn didn't have a cross on the headstone. It will also not matter that the others had these symbols of their religion above their heads as they slept in the grave. On that day, Floyd McKinn will stand perhaps side by side with the old preacher who gave him up lost forever and learn about salvation that God had planned and prepared for them from before the foundation of the world. We have all lost loved ones whom we long to see again. I want to be there to see Floyd McKinn meet his maker and realize that he was not doomed to eternity and torment but that he is loved by the heaven, uh, his heavenly father and that, he, and that his will is that all come to repentance. At that last great day, as the last great day approaches this year, I realize that I have an ever-increasing desire for the resurrection to take place soon. I am anxiously waiting for the wonderful gospel of salvation to be revealed to every member of Adam's race. Then we can take those old solemn green hillsides and bottom lands and remove all those marble slabs with their religious symbols and put the land to good use. Maybe we'll plant grapes instead of people in the ground or maybe even tomatoes. I thought that was a powerful message that uh, Ken tells about his father-in-law. You know, God will not deny 
one child of his a chance for salvation. Everybody gets a chance according to God's timing. And the last great day reveals when all those who never had their chance will be given their first chance. Continuing the state of the dead, Acts 24 and verse 15. And have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. This correlates with exactly what Jesus said. Continuing on, the resurrection chapter. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, what we have right now. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now, I look forward to that. You know, as you get older, you really long for, I'll get an amen from Sandy here. Uh, <laughs> you really long for a spiritual body. The reason is, you know, this one's wearing out. And it, it's, it's not, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's something that we desire. And it becomes more of a need the older you get. A new spiritual body. I like to speculate what spiritual bodies can do. Like travel at the speed of thought. Bullets go straight through spirit bodies. You can't hurt them. You can't kill them. You can't, you can't destroy them. They are immortal. You could try to fight one, I guess, but it wouldn't do you any good. <laughs> uh, it's it's going to be great. Yeah, traveling at the speed of... I would like to be... If I had a spiritual body right now, I would go to Hawaii right now. Uh, <laughs> or I... There's a scene in, in Superman uh, where he takes Lois Lane up in the sky, up in the heavens. And, oh, I, I can't quote that. It's a powerful quote, but... Uh, anyway, I'd, I'd like to see the, the universe earth from the moon and things like that. Spirit beings can do that, you know. Okay, 1 Corinthians, I'll get you that quote about Superman one day because it's powerful uh, what he says, but I, I'm having a brain fog right now. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51 <clears throat> says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, and that means we're not going to all die, but we shall be changed. There are going to be some who live up to the return of Christ. And even though they don't have to die in the sense of being buried and, and casket and all that, their body has to be chained. They have to shed that flesh. And, and in that sense, they do die, the fleshly body, but then they're given immediately a spiritual body. All right. But in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound. Now here we go to the feast of trumpets. Seven trumpets, the last trumpet, the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. All the symbols and everything connected to that in the book of Revelation, the trumpets. But, okay, the last trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal, what we are now, must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is not truly swallowed up in victory until the resurrection. But I just mentioned, you know, as we look at this, what did the New Testament church believe about the state of the dead? We really don't see 
I, don't, I know people make it say that, but, you know, when we get to heaven, I'll see you in heaven. The reward of the saved is heaven. Man has an immortal soul. We don't see that. We see that God only has immortality. And, and another point, this verse is, is powerful. Speaking of the heroes of faith, it says they were stoned. I don't even like to think about that. One reason I lay rocks, you know, stoned. It's, it's bad enough to lay those things. It's, it's worse to, to you know, think of, okay, being stoned to death. They were sawn asunder. Where did they start sawing a person? You know, these, these heroes of faith, we are spoiled as, as a people, our Christian faith. We are tough. These people had it tough. But I guarantee you their faith was tougher than ours. They were slain with the sword. They were wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Well, what promise? Well, the promise of eternal life. However you, however you want to look at that. God having provided some better thing for us, that they, without us, should not be made perfect. The better thing is the resurrection. At the same time, made perfect. Great reunion of God's saints. They without us should not be made perfect. Okay. Did I mention the dead don't know anything? I didn't quote that one. Okay. That's another scripture. Solomon. Ecclesiastes. What do the dead know? Nothing. Okay. Today's Christianity is it so different that it's become unrecognizable, is the question. A few more here. New Testament church, what they believe? Law of God? What they believe? What did Jesus believe about the law of God? Well, he says, think not that I've come to destroy the law. What is it that a lot of religious people think? That he came to destroy the law. Nail it to his cross. That nasty law, he nailed it to his cross. He says, I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, let me illustrate this. Fulfill. Okay. I got my glass up here. <laughs> Half full. The letter of the law says don't commit adultery. All right. We got a law. It's half full. Jesus comes along. He says, we're going to fill that law complete. I say unto you, if you so much as look at a woman to lust after her, you're guilty of committing adultery. Now we have that law totally fulfilled. Uh-oh. Uh, I'm going to make a mess. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, you know, Jesus, there were all kinds of people and, and, and who, okay, I've never committed adultery, I never cheated. But what goes on between the ears? J Jesus addresses the spiritual side of the law and in that sense brings it up, fulfills it to that level of what he truly wants. Uh, not only do I want you to keep the letter of the law, don't commit adultery, I want you to uh, keep the spirit of it and control what goes on in your mind. Because what goes on in your mind leads to the ultimate breaking of the letter. I mean, that, that's, you know, it starts up here and then it ends by us taking action and breaking the letter of the law. He said the thing, same thing about, you know, hating, you know, don't kill. And a lot of people say, I've never killed anybody, but I say unto you, if you are angry with your brother without a cause, you know, and, and you have people, I'm, I don't get mad, I get even. You know, and they hold, they harbor anger and hatred in their mind toward other people. All right, that's breaking the law. And so Jesus fulfills the law. He, he 
fills that cup full and explains, you know, to, to set that example for us and to explain it in that sense. You know, a lot of people read that, I've not come to destroy, but to destroy. You know, they, they take that word fulfill and think it means destroy. Well, no, that's not what it means. All right, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. You know, it's like Sandy says, you know, you walk outside your door and step on the earth and look up. If there's earth to stand on and heaven above you, it's not been, you know, there's nothing been dismissed about the law. <clears throat> you know, it's going to be fulfilled when people are keeping it in the way that Jesus wants us to keep it. John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus speaking. 1 John 5, verse 2, but this know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. Now you, you're going to have a lot of people that tell you the commandments are grievous. They're a burden to keep. Especially when you tell people you keep the Sabbath. That's a burden. You got, they'll tell you that. All right. 1 John 2 and verse 4. He that says I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Powerful statement. Powerful statement. All right, just a few more here. The New Testament church. What did the New Testament church? Justification. You hear a lot about justification. Okay, Romans 2 and verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. That's a simplistic explanation of, you know, it is. Now, the hearers are not going to be justified. The doers come into a position to be justified, but they're not justified by the law. They're justified by grace. That's how you have to see that. We're not trying to get justified by the law. You're justified by grace, but it is the doers that come into a position to be justified by grace. All right, speaking of grace, the New Testament church on grace, for by grace are you saved through faith. I believe that 100%. And that not of yourselves, I believe that 100%. It is the gift of God. I believe that. Not of works, lest any man should boast. I believe that also, that you can't earn your salvation by your good works. But most biblical books and preachers a lot of time will stop right there. They won't finish this one, this next verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Yeah, God's creating a new creation through His Spirit inside of us. And, you know, of course God doesn't want to spend eternity with rebels. He wants to create he, he, workmanship. We are His workmanship. <clears throat> the last one, New Testament church on obedience. I like this verse. No, excuse me. Still on the, where are we? Still on, uh, did I say grace? I think that was what we were talking about. Yeah. yeah, grace. Okay, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's still a choice that you have to make. You know, a person can choose, okay, sin. You can choose to follow God, but uh, the wages of sin is death. Death. 
not burning forever in hell. All right. We know that. All right. Obedience. And being made perfect, he became the author, speaking of Jesus, of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So we see, you know, um, the scripture. To conclude here, that you should earnestly continue for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And we shouldn't apologize for doing that. You know, we should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered into the saints. So I look at this and I think, okay, don't be different for the sake of being different. Truth of the matter is, you're different because you are. And the reason you seem to be so different is because the church that Jesus built has become unrecognizable. 